0: J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.
1: It may be one of the toughest parts of the job. The lead starts right now. President Biden touring the historic, heartbreaking tornado damage in Kentucky, the devastation so bad in some communities, residents still do not know how many lives were lost. A terrible milestone, 800,000 Americans gone because of COVID, but as the Omicron variant spreads, Dr. Fauci has some good news today about how to fight it. Ben. The assassination plot against a political leader involving anonymous packages, threatening letters, and raw meat. And it's all over vaccine mandates. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. We start today with breaking news. Any moment, we expect President Biden to address the nation from one of the town's hardest hit by the string of deadly tornadoes that ravaged several states in the U.S. last weekend. This afternoon, the president started his visit in Mayfield, part of Graves County, Kentucky, where 21 Kentuckians are confirmed dead so far. Biden promised local leaders that not only is the Biden administration on the ground to help now, they are committed to helping rebuild as long as it takes, he said. Mr. Biden also saying he's in awe of how these communities have come together in the wake of such destruction
2: has come out of nowhere to help as a community. And uh, that's what we're supposed to be doing. That's uh, what America's supposed to be. There's no uh, red tornadoes or blue tornadoes. There's no red states or blue states when this stuff starts to happen.
1: CNN's Caitlin Collins is traveling with President Biden in Dawson Springs, Kentucky. And Caitlin, what's been the message on the ground there today, not just from the president to these communities, but also from the tornado survivors to President Biden.
3: Well, he's been going and meeting with them individually, Jake. You've seen it as he's been touring those neighborhoods. And that message there, saying there's no red tornadoes, there's no blue tornadoes, this isn't a political aspect to this. You just see people coming together, trying to help clean up debris, helping people look through the debris for these family mementos. And I think that has really been the aspect of it, of how hard this community has been working in this just the days after this aftermath of this destruction, to try to help fix it and clean it up just a little bit, just to try to make it a little bit better.
1: Thank you, Caitlin. I'm sorry to interrupt. Here's a uh, Kentucky Governor uh, Bashir uh, speaking. That things did
3: not happen here until
4: Saturday. If you look around here or Mayfield in Muhlenberg County and a number of other towns, you might think that we are broken, but we are not. In Kentucky, we are good people. We love one another and we lean on one another. We open our homes to those in need, not just today, but every day. And we will repair our homes, our businesses, and we will repair our lives. We will do all of that together. As a people, we're not alone. The generosity and outpouring of love, pure, unconditional love, from around this country and around this world has been overwhelming millions of dollars and more water diapers sweatshirts household goods than we could ever count have poured in as a state we are also not alone president biden and the federal government have offered more aid and acted faster than we have ever seen in the history of the united states of america I received three personal calls from the president on day one. First, when he could get through, and then at the end of the day, saying, what else do you need? We got an immediate disaster declaration, which doesn't happen, and just, I think on the same day, not even a full day later, a major disaster declaration, and you know what? Starting yesterday, there were people here in FEMA shirts walking house to house to start processing people's claims to get them back on their feet. We've gone from looking for our dead to starting to haul away the death and destruction around us, and the steps to start rebuilding have already begun. I cannot thank the President enough And I know our federal delegation feels the same way. They have been hugely supportive. Thank you, Congressman Comer, for being strong for this community and for pushing for everything we need in Washington, D.C. You've been a wonderful partner. I hope the people of Kentucky know that I care deeply about them, and the President does too. He's here in Dawson Springs, Kentucky, because we're hurting. I am so thankful for the full, unwavering support of our federal delegation. I'm so thankful for the president that has said yes to every ask we've made. And you know, he's going to have some news about another ask that I made, one that I thought there was no way that we could get a yes to. But it's going to mean the federal government isn't just here, isn't just doing things we've never seen before, but is fully behind every single family that has suffered any loss. On behalf of Brittany and I, to the people of Kentucky, we love you. And I never thought in my life I'd be able to introduce a president. And I wish there were different circumstances. But I'm still very honored to be able to do introduce a president in my dad's hometown, President Joe Biden.
2: Gov, oh, thank you. I want to introduce a new friend of mine. This is Dane. Dane lived down the street. And uh, Dane and all his — he has cousins who are all together. And one cousin — I don't know where she is. There she is. Come on up here, honey. Can you see me? Come here. She is about to graduate from UK on Friday. On Friday. And uh, and I just want you to meet him I I'm sorry to keep you all waiting, but I got a chance to hang out with the whole extended family down there, and I want you to meet a soon-to-be graduate who wants to go on to graduate school. Come on up here, hon. And we're
5: proud of
2: you. you. We're proud of you. What's your first name? Abby. Abby is here, and uh, we're going to figure something special for her graduation day. But imagine that this Friday she graduates from UK. I kid and say the best thing that ever came out of Kentucky was my sister-in-law and uh, she is uh, uh, she's all blue she went to UK then she went up to Duke Law school and she married my brother we're all thankful to everybody for her marrying my brother and at uh, any rate so you got to remember me when you're president right yeah okay <laughs> thank you I just want you to meet the folks I was just hanging with thank you honey thank you Bye. Annie thank you gov the introduction I uh your forbearance is uh, is commendable. I uh, This has to be an emotional moment for you, the family, for the congressman, for all of you. Congressman, thanks for the passport into your district. Appreciate it. And the, the uh, I want to also thank uh, everyone here that uh, took the time to be here. And, uh, you know, um, one of the things, back in the 1900s, Dawson Springs uh, was uh, a place where people came to be healed because of the mineral waters. Literally, it was a place you came to heal. Now it's our turn to help the entire town to heal. You know, I, uh, I granted the request for the first emergency uh, declaration and, uh, and major disaster declaration the moment I received it because I got to know the governor's father, and I knew nothing would come. It wasn't real. I mean it, for real. And, uh, you know, yesterday, I also approved an emergency declaration for the state of Illinois and Tennessee. And I intend to do whatever it takes, as long as it takes, as long as it takes to support your state, your local leaders, and for as you recover and rebuild, because you will recover and you will rebuild. You know, uh, the scope and scale of this destruction is almost beyond belief. When you look around here, it's just almost beyond <clears throat> belief. These tornadoes devoured everything in their path. And, you know, as I flew over here in a helicopter, you can look down and you see a house 20 yards away from a house that's devastated, and the house is in good shape. I mean, it's just tornadoes are such devastating storms. Back where I'm from, we're used to hurricanes and floods and high water, but the, these tornadoes are just something totally different. And not, you divide, it divided everything in the path, your homes, your businesses, your houses of worship, your dreams, your lives. And, you know, the governor confirmed there are, I think you said, 74 fatalities so far, Gov, in Kentucky, and, and uh, making these among the deadliest tornadoes that to ever strike this state. Almost 14 people are confirmed dead in other states, with dozens of people still, still fearful of where, the, where they are. I met one. I, won't, I don't have permission to use their name, but I met one couple on the way up. Said they're still looking for four of their friends. They don't know where they are. And those who lost someone, there's no words for the pain of losing someone. A lot of us know it. A lot of us understand it, especially around the holidays when everything's supposed to be happy and joyful. It was a long time ago. I got a phone call around the holidays and found out that uh, I was in Washington as a young senator, not sworn in yet, about to be uh, hiring staff. And I got a call saying from a first responder that there had been an accident, a tractor trailer broadsided my wife with a Christmas tree on top and my three kids inside. My wife and daughter are dead. But my mother, God-lover, used to always say, out of everything terrible, something good will happen. Something good has to happen out of this. It just can't be all bad. We've got to make it better. And so, folks, those who have lost someone know, know how tough it is. And you know how tough it is. You know, in Mayfield, just hours before the storm, we just came from Mayfield, the Gibson Pharmacy had uh, been full of families with children waiting to meet Santa. Now it's completely gone. And so many businesses that are vital to the community have been so damaged and destroyed, in your town as well. There's a saying in small towns, People know about it when you're born, and they care about it when you die. They know about it when you're born, and they care about it when you die. Well, in so many places, destruction was met with compassion. Neighbors and first responders racing to help and save each other's lives and support. I mean, I asked, I'm not joking, I asked when I got to Mayfield, what the first thing my my first responders, FEMA and the And what they heard, they said they were amazed. All they heard was about people just going out, helping one another. Everybody, everybody just stepping up. It's incredible. It's incredible how you all step up. And so, folks, you know, uh, uh, the fact is, I'm going to make sure the federal government uh, steps up and make sure we do every single thing. For years and years as U.S. senator and then as vice president. We, I come from Delaware, we have a lot of serious storms hurricanes, oceans rising, a whole range of things. But you know what? It always took a long time. There's no reason why it should take any time. We have the wherewithal to get it done, and we're going to get every single thing you need. And I'm going to make sure the federal government does what's needed. At the state's request, four FEMA search and rescue teams are working here in Kentucky right now. For those without power, FEMA's already provided 61 generators. The Army Corps of Engineers has a temporary power install teams to ready to assist if needed. And we provided critical supplies thus far and a lot more to come. 144,000 liters of drinking water, 24,000 meals, uh, you know, uh, uh, I just I 74,000. And look, thousands of cots and blankets. There are seven, seven shelters open in Kentucky which are now taking care of 300 occupants, but a lot more is going to occur. Of course, housing is a key. Because of COVID, we want to make sure people are out of those shelters as quickly as they can because of COVID. And ultimately, we want to start to provide some certainty for people. I've been involved in responding to a lot of disasters, and you can see it in people's faces. What they're really looking for — and look around, I say to the press — what they're looking for is just to be able to put their head down on a pillow, be able to close their eyes, take a deep breath, go to sleep and make sure the kids are OK. That's what people are looking for right now. But a lot of hard work is going to happen in the next two and three months to bring it all the way back. And so, folks, the governor, I want to gov, I want to provide you the certainty as well. I just uh, approved the request that I'd, I wasn't sure I had the authority to do, but it turns out I do. The government's going to cover 100 percent of the cost. of the cost for the first 30 days for all the emergency work from clearing everything to every single cost the federal government's going to take care of and uh, it includes debris removal cost of overtime and law enforcement emergency service personnel and shelter and that will get you through and by the way I want to thank your wife she started a toy drive for this part of the state to make sure how many come here I'm, I'm taking credit for something I have nothing to do with. How could but, you? But tell, tell them what you got so far.
6: Well, as of this morning, we think that we have around 20,000 gifts donated, and we've got three more days to go.
2: 20,000 gifts, so no kid's going to go to sleep wherever they get to sleep tonight without a gift. God love you. And look, uh, we also need to recognize that people have suffered mental and emotional injuries. The cost of this sometimes are unseen and unknown. You know, you, have, you know, people talk about post-traumatic stress in the battlefield as I travel through Afghanistan and Iraq. Well, guess what? There's a lot of post-traumatic stress that comes from lying in your house and all of a sudden the roof goes blowing off and you wonder whether your kids are around. I really mean it. So uh, you know, with the shock of losing a home and a business, the grief of losing someone, it's happening right before the holidays, as I said, and we're going to make sure that you have all the help you need, including the kind of mental help that's needed to help people through difficult times. And, folks, uh, you know, the uh, FEMA has opened mobile disaster recovery centers in Mayfield and in Dawson Springs, and it has disaster survivor assistance teams on the ground here in Kentucky to help people register for assistance. As I said when I talked to the governor, not only that we're going to get what you need, we're going to make sure you know everything's available because you don't always know all that is available, all that is available. And that's what we're going to do. And, folks, you know, uh, if you live in an affected areas, which all of you are standing here watching me do, you know, you visit disasterassistance.gov, disasterassistance.gov, or call 1-800-621-FEMA. That's one 800 I promise you, you're going to heal. We're going to recover. you are going to rebuild. You're going to be stronger than you were before. We're going to build back better than it was. And when I come back, I got one beautiful lady uh, and her husband promised me a meal. She's apparently a hell of a cook. So I'm coming back for the meal. So thank you, thank you, thank you for being here. And to all the families here. Keep the faith. We're going to get this done, I promise you. The governor's not walking away. Your county judge is not walking away. Your congressman's not walking away. No one's walking away. We're in this for the long haul. Thank you very much for your patience. not now. We, we don't need it yet. We don't need it now. You know, there has been, because of weather disasters just this year, over $99 billion in losses, $99 billion in losses. And as I flew over, I was telling folks here, as I was out with the governor of California and Idaho and other states, as you fly over those territories for the better part of an hour, looking down, every single solitary thing is leveled because of the fires. Nothing there. The forest, the homes, the businesses. And guess what? So much area has burned this year because of weather and climate changes that is larger than the entire state of New Jersey. The entire state of New Jersey. That's how much land has been burned to the ground. So we got a lot to do. we got a lot to do. But the American people are ready to do it. This is the United States of America. There's not a darn thing we can't do. Thank you.
1: You've been watching President Biden in Dawson Springs, Kentucky, speaking about the damage he saw today from the devastating tornadoes uh, in the state. Um, he was introduced by the governor, uh, Andy Bashir, whose father is a two-term governor, Steve Bashir, and Dawson Springs is his father's hometown. Let's go back to CNN's Caitlin Collins, who's traveling with President Biden. And, and Caitlin, President Biden says the federal government will be covering the cost of the cleanup.
3: Right, that's part of that disaster declaration that he put in place over the weekend. They amended that today. But the president there in those remarks, Jake, talking about destruction, meeting compassion, that is certainly the case of what we've seen here in Dawson Springs today where there is a lot of destruction. You can see it all behind me. But there's also been a lot of compassion of neighbors helping other neighbors look through, try to find family pictures, dishes, any kind of memento that has been completely destroyed uh, or lost as a part of this destruction that they've seen. And, of course, a big part of this going forward, Jake, is going to be housing, which is a huge issue here uh, of people who have lost their entire houses and there aren't a lot of places for them to stay nearby because there's been damage to other facilities where typically you would be able to put someone in a situation like this. And so just where I'm standing here in Dawson Springs, we should remind everyone about a third of the city's population lives beneath the poverty line and the average median household income, Jake, is just over $25,000. That's according to the city's mayor, Carson Smiley. And so that is going to be a big aspect of this going forward is how to make sure people can get housing back because if they don't have insurance what do they do to get this back and what do they do going forward and so President Biden emphasizing that there it is going to be a huge aspect of it Jake but also just to talk about what people are going through looking for uh, of these things looking through the rubble that is left here behind us as they do start to clean up this debris as you heard Governor Bashir talking about.
1: All right. Caitlin Collins in Dawson Springs, Kentucky. Thank you so much. Uh, Let's go to Mayfield, Kentucky. Now President Biden's first stop today. We're finding temporary housing and where power outages are a real problem for survivors of these tornadoes. CNN's Brian Todd is on the ground there for us. And Brian, how are the recovery efforts going there in Mayfield and, and how is the community holding up?
7: Uh, The community is really hurting now, Jake. This is not untypical in the aftermath of a tornado. You know, the first couple of days afterward, you see people picking through their homes. They're very stoic. They don't show much emotion. They're in shell shock. It's right now, four to five days afterward, when the pain and the loss really start to take hold. And I spoke to a gentleman whose home, his apartment was destroyed, Jimmy uh, Henley, a short time ago. Take a listen. You feel that this happened just a few days before Christmas. (sighs)
2: lived here all my life. I couldn't even recognize some of the roads, and I, I'm sorry. But I've known these people all my life, and they're helpless. I don't know what to do for them, but we're trying.
7: And another lady we spoke to just said uh, there is no Christmas this year, and then she started crying. Now, as we survey the damage again in downtown Mayfield, we can tell you that these salvage officials, the people conducting these operations here, the clearing, uh, one of them told us it'll take two to four months for them to clear all of this debris from the Mayfield area. And we did just get an updated uh, word on some casualties here, Jake. Uh, The mayor's office told us 21 people confirmed dead just in Graves County, where Mayfield is. The ages of the dead range from two months to 98 years old
8: all right brian
1: todd in mayfield kentucky thank you so much joining us now to discuss mayfield city councilman barry mcdonald who met with president biden during the president's visit to mayfield today councilman before i ask you uh, about your visit with the president um i want to ask you if it's okay
9: is your family doing all right how are they yes sir thank you for asking uh we're fine my wife and i we're at home and uh we're safe our home is about three quarters of a mile from the first uh, building that uh, was on the ground. Uh, I think uh, the the destruction, the path of destruction is just uh, hard to believe that that it would happen and it could happen and and be a, a tornado of this size. What can you tell us about your conversation with President Biden today, sir? yes uh, he he was uh, supportive obviously uh, you could see the care and concern for the community and the victims um, and the message he brought that the federal government is uh, homeland FEMA they're on they're rolling everything he, we've asked for the governor's asked for uh, our state FEMA directors asked for everything congressman has asked for his uh, been approved. And and that's all we can do and and continue to expect and hope we get that support. And I believe we will. Were you able to talk to President Biden and and the
1: other officials there, the governor, Congressman Comer, others about what your city needs
9: the most right now? And and what is that? Well, cleanup, infrastructure, uh, the support from People outside of the community is just overwhelming the amount of uh, supplies, food, water, clothing, those type of things brought in is, is uh, oh my gosh, just great. Uh, we just need to keep moving forward every day because we have an opportunity here uh, to. Um, it's not going to be the same, but we have an opportunity to rebuild, and, and now's the opportunity to make it even better than it was. So we've heard um, from Governor Bashir and other state leaders
1: that they believe at least 100 Kentuckians remain missing uh, after the tornadoes. Do you know if everyone who lives in Mayfield or Graves County
9: has been accounted for? I have not... Been told, or I wasn't told today of any numbers of anybody that's still missing. I'm, I'm not, I don't have an accurate uh, okay. count on that, so I'd, I'd hate to answer that. It's been almost five days. How are people
1: in Mayfield holding up right now in this new reality?
9: Right. I think, <clears throat> I, I think uh, a lot of people, the reality is set in. Uh, as you said, day five. And it's easy to remember uh, the first couple of days were kind of numbing. Every day is a new challenge, but you continue to see uh, people uh, press forward. Uh, And I know there's so much support here right now. I worry about two weeks from now when Christmas and New Year's is coming past or it's cold weather, I worry about two months from now I heard the president speak about the emotional support that we're going to need, or people that are really that have lost loved ones or their homes in this community in Dawson Springs are going to need six months from now or or whenever, because it uh, it's going to have made an everlasting uh, impact on their life. Yeah, that's an important point, and you'll have to
1: stay in touch with us so we can make sure uh attention on this site um five days later is one thing but attention five months later is another and and we'll make sure to keep uh, bringing the news um from mayfield to our viewers one of your fellow council members said on cnn earlier today that your community is dealing with some housing issues are there places to stay for everyone who needs one
9: i believe there are uh, i know they've opened state parks Uh, we have uh four or five regional uh, state parks close to us. And those facilities, those hotels have opened up. They have other shelters in Paducah and uh, in part of maybe some churches here in Mayfield. So I believe temporary housing, it's what we worry. I've already seen the need. I was in a different part of the city this morning where I I didn't realize how many houses were definitely uh, destroyed, not gonna be repairable. And there's going to be a huge need for new housing in, in our community.
1: Mayfield, Kentucky City Councilman Barry McDonald, thank you. God bless you. Please stay in touch with us so we can continue to shine a light on, on what the good citizens of Graves County, Kentucky, need uh, in the weeks and months ahead. Thank you, Jake. And for more information about how you can help tornado victims, go to CNN.com impact. CNN.com impact. Coming up, they helped organize the January 6th rally. Now they're talking to House lawmakers investigating the insurrection, plus an assassination plot foiled. Lawmakers in Germany getting a package of raw meat and threatening letters with a warning about vaccine mandates. Stay with us. In our politics lead, the January 6th committee investigation is in overdrive right now, after last night's vote to hold former President Trump's chief of staff, Mark Meadows in criminal contempt of Congress for not testifying before the committee. Today, the committee is meeting with Ken Klukowski, a deputy to former Trump Justice Department official Jeffrey Clark. Clark, as you might remember, is the person who helped Trump devise one of many plans to overturn the election. This one included ousting then-acting Attorney General Jeffrey Rosen, I believe. CNN's Whitney Wild joins us now live with more on this. Whitney, what is the committee hoping to learn from Clark's former right-hand man?
10: Well, I think they're trying to learn what efforts Jeffrey Clark made to overturn the election and who was directing it. And the reason Ken Klukowski is so important is because we know that there have been other people within DOJ who have already testified. Former Attorney General, acting Attorney General Jeffrey Rosen, other deputies. But the reality is the committee has not heard from Jeffrey Clark. So anybody who was very close to Jeffrey Clark at the time can give a real firsthand account of the efforts that he was making. And his interview is especially important because Jeffrey Rosen and other members of DOJ have been questioned about him in the past. And their testimony showed that they actually don't know that much about Kent Klukowski. So this is an opportunity for the committee to know a lot of information that really can only come from one person, Jake.
1: And a short while ago, you spoke with a January 6 rally organizer who met with the committee yesterday. Mm -hmm. Uh, What did he tell you?
10: Well, he said he met with the committee for, for about seven hours. He called it an extremely substantive review. Um, he, he described this meeting as investigators walking in with stacks of paper that he had provided. So they went through methodically what he knows. And he maintains this is an extremely thorough investigation. Uh, and he told us a lot about what was going on behind the scenes leading up to January 6th. And, and specifically, what happened on that day. One of the key points I thought he made in our interview was when he was talking about the rally organizers waiting to hear basically directly from the former president about what to do, what statement should they make, because he was advocating for making a statement out of the gate and speaking a lot, but he says there were rally organizers who were waiting to get their cues directly from the White House. Here's what he told me.
11: They were absolutely looking for his Twitter account for guidance. I mean, they they were looking to hear instructions from the president and uh, they weren't getting it so they continued to do what they were doing it seemed like and uh, it's man it that was the point for me it feels like when you get conned right like when you finally realize and the shades pulled from your eyes and you just look back at all the different warning signs you should have picked up on
10: and what he what he meant by this being the moment was that he felt like there was an opportunity for the president to uh, exercise leadership here. He thought Don Jr.'s text to him saying, this is the time to lead, text to Mark Meadows trying to get the president to lead, and, and he didn't do it. And so that was the moment when he realized he, he felt like he'd been conned, Jake. He looked for leadership from the president, and it never came.
1: All right, Whitney Wild, thank you so much. Now the decision to charge Meadows is in the hands of Attorney General Merrick Garland. CNN's Evan Perez joins us now live from the Justice Department. And Evan, how long... We expect it to take for the attorney general uh, and the U.S. attorney for D.C. to make a decision about whether or not to prosecute Mark Meadows.
12: Well, the Justice Department is not saying right now, Jake, but, uh, you know, there are all the indications that we're getting is that this is probably not going to take. Uh, this is going to take longer than the 21 days it took for the prosecutors in the U.S. attorney's office in D.C. to study that matter to, to investigate that 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 case against Steve Bannon, which they believe was a much more straightforward case. In this case, uh, Meadows has filed a lawsuit, for instance. And so that case is now in front of a judge. And it is possible that that could add some time uh, uh, for prosecutors to, to have to consider uh, what to do about Mark Meadows' case.
1: What sort of complications does this case present? It's worth pointing out, Unlike Steve Bannon, who they are prosecuting, right. Mark Meadows was not just a government employee at the time, Well, he was White House chief of staff. Right. And unlike Bannon, Meadows has cooperated at least a little bit. He has turned over documents, even if he has refused to testify. Is there a chance that Meadows,
12: uh, I'm sorry, that Merrick Garland will not prosecute Meadows? I think there is a chance, and uh, I think all, what you just laid out are, are exactly the complications that make this not exactly a straightforward case, and uh, there is decades of, 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 of uh, legal guidance from this building, from the Justice Department, that says, you know, there is a special kind of executive privilege that is, uh, that is provided, cover essentially, uh, protection that is given to close advisers of presidents, including former presidents, that they don't necessarily have to show up to testify. That is uh, years of of guidance from this building. So that is going to come into play, Jake, as well as the fact that you can say he did provide some assistance.
1: All right, Evan Perez at the DOJ, thanks so much. If you thought the Delta variant spread quickly, the head of the CDC has a startling warning about the Omicron variant. That's next. And our healthy Dr. Fauci providing some hope today. If you get your booster shot, you'll have protection, he says, against the rapidly spreading Omicron variant. That clear picture taking shape as the U.S. passes a sad benchmark that no one wanted to reach. 800,000 Americans have been lost to coronavirus since the pandemic started in early 2020. And as CNN's Alexandra Field reports for us now, hospitals are still strained for beds and for critical staff.
13: The grim milestone as Delta's destructive toll continues across the country and Omicron cases spread quickly, the new variant now detected in at least 36 states. We expect to see the proportion of Omicron cases here in the United States continue to grow in the coming weeks. Early data suggests that Omicron is more transmissible than Delta, with a doubling time of about two days. One in six hospitals in the U.S. is already reporting critical staffing shortages, with patient numbers still climbing.
14: I think this is an opportunity to remind people the importance of testing before they visit with family, testing before travel to make sure they're not bringing the Omicron variant back to their home states or home communities.
13: New data from the National Institutes of Health finds a third dose of Moderna's vaccine offers protection against Omicron that's 20 times greater than the two-dose regimen, while Pfizer's booster shot is 75% effective against symptomatic infection. A strengthening case for boosters, while new restrictions are set to take effect. California implementing a month-long indoor mask mandate today. The last thing we want is to have a loved one need timely and high-quality hospital services and not be able to get that because of something we could have prevented. New York City moving forward with a vaccine mandate for the private sector later this month. This new variant moves fast. We have to move faster. Professional sports are yet again suffering COVID setbacks players pulled and games postponed as cases spike in highly vaccinated and regularly tested leagues. The NFL reporting dozens of positive tests among players since Monday alone. The Rams hit hard along with the Browns, whose head coach is among the latest to test positive.
11: The omicron variant is incredibly transmissible it's hit in every state players are still traveling to go to different states to, to play uh, and so they're being exposed the delta variant is still ravaging through communities and hospitals
8: as well
13: and jake all of this comes as so many people are getting ready to travel for the holidays to spend some time with extended family members that they didn't get to see last year well philadelphia's health commissioner is throwing some cold water on that idea advising people not to gather with other households, citing a rise in cases after Thanksgiving celebrations. That might just be too big a sacrifice for some, and she says those people should, at a bare minimum, take a rapid test first. Jake?
1: All right, Alex Field, thanks so much. Joining us now to discuss CNN Chief Medical Correspondent Dr. Sanjay Gupta. Sanjay, at today's White House COVID briefing, Dr. Fauci said, quote, at this point there is no need for a variant-specific booster, unquote. He cited data that the current Mm -hmm. booster dose does a good enough job protecting against severe disease with the new Omicron variant, as well as other variants. So what is your message to those who are eligible but still have not gotten their boosters?
15: Well, I think the the data is starting to tell a pretty clear story here, Jake. Let let me show you some of what we're seeing out of the U.K. here, looking at the protection against the variants. Uh, You know, we've shown this data all throughout the pandemic, or at least since the vaccines, in terms of the effectiveness. So Delta Omicron, Delta's yellow, Omicron blue. Uh, in the first uh, few weeks, up to nine weeks, you have really good protection against both after two doses of the vaccine. But you can see what happens. This is what's had caused all the concern, how much drop-off there is in the blue Omicron as time goes on. But with the boosters that exist now, you can restore a lot of that protection. Just to, This is two weeks after the booster, that far-right graph. And you can see a significant amount of protection is restored. So, I mean, that that tells a story. I think that's why there's been so much emphasis on boosters and less than a third of the country that's eligible has received those boosters. The larger story, Jake, is the one that we keep talking about as well, which is just simply those people who have not been vaccinated at all. If you look at the tens of thousands of people who are in the hospital with COVID, what you find is that there remains a very clear difference between unvaccinated in red and vaccinated in green. That's, that's still the most important part of the vaccine story right now, Jake.
1: So CDC Director Dr. Rochelle Walensky, she's been hesitant to give an answer on whether the definition of fully vaccinated will change to include not just the first two shots or first one shot, if you get the J&J, but the booster as well. What do you think of that? Is it a mistake uh, to not change the definition of fully vaccinated, uh, considering it is so clear that boosters help so much with immunity?
15: I think so at this point. I think it is it is very clear. I mean, you know, the the data is is there now. You know, in, in the beginning, I think there's there's two points. One is that the two shots still do work very well. I just showed you the difference in hospitalizations between unvaccinated and vaccinated. But at the same time, it's it's very clear that the booster offers a significant benefit. Dr. Fauci said it's an, no longer a question of if, but when they change that definition. People like Dr. Peter Hotez said this should have always been thought of as a three-shot sort of thing. So, um, yeah, they, they should probably do it. I mean, there's enough hesitancy around this as it is, just making it clear that this is a, likely to be a three-shot vaccine, just like other vaccines, like hepatitis, for example. This is not unusual, but I think the, the, the messaging around this has still been muddled.
1: Sanjay, you, you have some new data on what our world would look like if we never had the vaccine. Show us that.
15: Yeah, this is this is um, it's, it's um, amazing data to look at and somewhat terrifying at the same time. Let me show you. Basically, what they did, this is from the Commonwealth Fund, they looked at how many cases, how many hospitalizations, how many infections, uh, how many deaths, I should say, have been averted because of the vaccine. We can go ahead and show those numbers. But basically, you look at this, this graph shows, again, a red line and a green line in terms of the differences here, um, what happens if you don't have vaccines is where we would be right now, that big surge uh, of red line in the middle. Uh, up to 21,000 deaths per day, they say, would be occurring if there weren't vaccines. You can see on the left side of the screen there, these are the numbers now, how many, how many deaths prevented million, which is amazing to think about, 35 million infections prevented because of the vaccines, and that's what the current vaccination sort of uptake. If we had had higher vaccine uptake, we would have obviously been able to draw even a greater distinction in terms of the number of deaths and cases and hospitalizations prevented. These are models, Jake, so it's a little bit hard to say for sure, but there's no question that the vaccines as they stand have made a huge difference and that they would have made even a bigger difference if we had higher uptake at this point.
1: Sanjay, in about 10 minutes, uh, the National Cathedral is going to ring its morning bell uh, 800 times, um, one time for each of the thousand Americans who have died of COVID. I wanted to get your reflections on this horrific milestone. You've been covering the pandemic, coming on my show to talk about it since the very beginning, since February, March 2020. How are you taking stock of all this loss?
15: It's, it's, a, it's a gut punch still, you know, Jake. I mean, as much as we celebrate the scientific achievements around vaccines and monoclonal antibodies and therapeutics and testing, we learned a lot about this virus. There's no question that so many of these deaths uh, have been preventable. I mean, there's a lot of families who, who've lost loved ones. I know people, families who've lost loved ones. I still talk to people on a regular basis. Uh, it's, it's, it's tough to, to reconcile. I also think about the fact that, you know, even short of the vaccines, you look at a country like South Korea, um, their first patient, Jake, I remember talking to you about it at the time, their first patient was diagnosed on the same day uh, the first patient was diagnosed here. Um, they're a country that's smaller than ours, about a sixth the size. They've had around 4,500 people die, 4,500, 4,500 uh, where we've had 800,000 people die. So it's, uh, it's, it's tough. I mean, it's, it's hard to, again, reconcile what we, were, what we would have been able to do with these vaccines in particular and what has unfolded over the last several months.
1: All right, Sanjay Gupta, thanks so much. In our world lead, a plot to assassinate a governor and suspicious packages filled with raw meat. That's how some anti-vax extremists are behaving. It's a small but vocal minority opposing the new German chancellor's vow to squash their protest of coronavirus restrictions. CNN's senior international correspondent Fred Fleitken is in Berlin for us. And Fred, tell us about this deranged plot mm-hmm. to, to murder a German governor. Yeah, you're absolutely right, Jake. It's a small group, uh, but one that certainly is becoming more
16: vocal and apparently more violent as well. And it's interesting because the police was saying that this group was uh, communicating on the messaging app Telegram. The police uh, got word of this. They found out about this. And essentially what they said is what this, that this group talked about killing the governor of the state of Saxony because of his stance on vaccines, because he, was, he, he is pro-vaccine. Also uh, talking about killing other senior members of that local government uh, as well. But what set off the raids that happened today, Jake, is the the fact that this group also talked about being armed. And so there were raids in several locations around the town of Dresden that happened today. And the police did say that it found several crossbows and as they put it, other weapons as well. It's unclear whether or not those were firearms, but the police are saying this potentially was an extremely dangerous situation within a situation here in Germany where more and more of these groups apparently are becoming more violent,
1: Jake. And Fred, the, the German chancellor, the new German chancellor, Olaf Scholz, he, he's only mm-hmm. a week into his new job. How's he handling this? this? yeah well he certainly says he's going to crack down
16: uh, on people like that it's quite interesting because he says that there is certainly going to be a lot less tolerance of people who first of all don't want to take vaccine and then also these conspiracy groups and anti-vax groups uh, as well he calls it an unhinged tiny group of extremists and i want you to listen in to what he said in german parliament today
0: what exists today in germany is denial absurd conspiracy theories deliberate misinformation and violent extremism. Let's be clear, a small extremist minority in our country has turned away from our society, our democracy, our community and our state, and not only from science, rationality and reason.
16: And all that, Jake, on the same day that in addition to that plot to kill a governor, uh, packages with raw meat and threatening letters were also sent to politicians and media organizations saying that parcels like that would continue to be sent if there is a vaccine mandate here in this country, Jake.
1: All right, Fred Plotkin. thanks so much. Coming up, it has fueled tons of conspiracy theories. Today's secret government files about the assassination of President John F. Kennedy were finally made public. Will this new information put any of the wild theories to rest. Stay with us. Welcome to the lead. I'm Jake Tapper. This hour, secret documents revealed the U.S. government releasing today previously classified files about the assassination of President John F. Kennedy. Plus, new CNN polls showing Americans do not feel so great about the state of the economy. Not good news for President Biden. And leading this hour... This afternoon, the Justice Department received the criminal contempt of Congress report for Mark Meadows after the U.S. House of Representatives voted to refer Meadows for failing to testify before the January 6th committee. As CNN's Ryan Nobles reports for us now, this is a significant move from the January 6th committee as they get closer and closer, it seems, to Donald Trump.
5: The fate of former White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows now in the hands of the Department of Justice.
1: The resolution is adopted.
5: Speaker Nancy Pelosi signing the resolution late Tuesday night after the House voted to hold Meadows in contempt. The Department of Justice received the report at noon and will now decide whether to prosecute. The committee chairman, Benny Thompson, believes they have built a strong case.
9: This isn't about any sort of privilege or immunity. This is about Mr. Meadows refusing to comply with the subpoena to discuss the records he himself turned over
5: as does president joe biden though he says he hasn't spoken to anyone as the doj is independent of the white house seems
2: to me he war- is worthy of being held in contempt
5: it is a case built on documents provided voluntarily by meadows among them his text messages including some from fellow lawmakers
12: on january 6 2021 vice president mike pence as president of the senate should call out all electoral votes that he believes are unconstitutional has no electoral votes at all
5: that message read by congressman adam schiff was a legal theory that trump ally jim jordan got from a former government lawyer and then forwarded to meadows jordan's office tells cnn the committee did not reveal the names of the lawmakers texting with meadows in the lead-up to january 6 but they did put them on notice
17: indeed some of those text messages madam speaker came from members in the chamber right now members who understood that a violent assault was underway at the Capitol.
5: Today, the committee met with Ken Kulikowski, a former DOJ official who worked under Jeffrey Clark. Clark pushed top justice brass to investigate unfounded claims of election fraud. He's been resistant to cooperating with the committee and is in danger of being held in contempt himself. While some Trump loyalists resist, hundreds of others are cooperating, including rally organizer Dustin Stockton. After his interview with the committee, Stockton put much of the blame for that day on Donald Trump. The buck's got to stop at President Trump. Um, He knew better and there's
16: no excuse for him sending people down into that situation.
5: And it appears that the committee is interviewing witnesses at a rapid clip. The committee chairman, Benny Thompson, telling us this week that they had dozens of interviews scheduled. There are some high profile names scheduled for depositions later this week. Among them, Roger Stone and the conspiracy theorist, Alex Jones. Of course, Jake, the big question is, will they show up for those interviews? Jake.
1: Ryan Nobles, thanks so much. Let's discuss. Uh, Sabrina, let me start with you. So Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell, um, the Republican leader of the Senate, uh, was asked yesterday about the committee's work. Uh, Take a listen to what he had to say.
9: I do think we're all watching, as you are, what is unfolding on the House side. And it um, will be interesting to reveal all the uh, participants who were involved. Now,
1: we should note, McConnell voted against the creation of this committee. On the other hand, he donated recently to Liz Cheney's campaign. She's running for re-election. She's the vice chair of the committee. What's the angle here? I'm not following.
18: Well, there has been an interesting split when it comes to Republican leaders in their response to January 6th. House uh, Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy, after initially distancing himself from former President Trump, has become once again, more of a foot soldier uh, for former President Trump and tried to downplay the events of January 6th. McConnell, on the other hand, you know, I think he's happy to see anything that might help diminish Trump's standing within the party. I mean, remember, McConnell has been a key target of uh, former President Trump and his allies, and he hasn't exactly been at the forefront of trying to get to the bottom of January 6th, but he is aware that Trump and his allies are also trying to primary a lot of the types of Republicans who McConnell believes should still be serving in Congress. Now, the only challenge, of course, is that as far as the Republican base is concerned, uh, they're a lot more in line with Trump and and you know his supporters yeah. or his followers than they are in line with the McConnells and the Liz Cheneys. At least as
1: of now, as As of now. now. Charles, I want to introduce you. uh, Republican strategist Charles Bain, thanks so much. Good to have you here. I want to um, show you something. Democratic Congressman Jamie Raskin, who's on the committee yesterday, revealed uh, another text from an unnamed uh, Republican official to then White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows. This is on November 4th, the day after the election. Mm -hmm. And it says, here's an aggressive strategy. Why can't the states of Georgia, North Carolina, Pennsylvania and other Republican controlled state houses declare this is B.S.? were conflicts and election not called that night, and just send their own electors to vote and have it go to the Supreme Court. Now, we should know, this is, they were still counting votes. This right. is a day after the election. They had all those paper ballots because of COVID. Uh, and this was entirely just about stealing the election without even Any evidence, it was just like, here's a way to steal the election before we've even counted the votes. I mean, he ended up winning North Carolina Trump.
19: (laughs) Right, and I mean, we have an audit going on in Texas where, you know, he won Texas, and we're having that conversation as well. But I think when you speak to Republican activists and folks on the ground, they truly had concerns about what was happening. I mean in Harris County, which is Texas's largest county, we had a lot of conversations around what was happening with 24-hour voting, with drive-through voting, if there was fraud happening, how can, we can make sure there wasn't fraud going to be happening. So we had a lot of our representatives stepping up and trying to insert themselves in that process early on to try to make sure that the base was was reassured that the process was done correctly. And so I think even at the start of this, they jumped out of it and they were willing to, to engage with it. Now, I'm not going to say that throughout the entire course, everything stayed, you know, above board and earnest. But I think at the start of it, you had a lot of folks who were very concerned about some of the things that we were saying, particularly, you know, speaking from a Texas perspective in our large counties, and they wanted to make sure that the process was being followed through.
14: You know, this is what Republicans always do, um, with all due respect. <laughs> they, they, you, you don't want to
19: align yourself with
14: Donald Trump trying to steal the election. So instead, you make up that there were reasons to be concerned about the election and therefore legitimate reasons for all this extra scrutiny. When, of course, the facts showed that the results were actually kind of above scrutiny, above above reproach. Republicans
1: did great in Texas. And
14: and if there were so many concerns, all of those Republicans who got elected in Texas, you know, shouldn't be uh, in office. And so... I, I, I just don't think you guys can have it both ways. You can't say, oh, well, there were all these legitimate problems with the election. But really, yeah. you know, well, we're not we're I, not I'll supporting I'll what Donald I Trump just add did. Uh,
20: that text itself is why so many election security experts, why Democrats are increasingly concerned uh, about, you know, fortifying the Electoral Count Act, right. which is, you know, a centuries old law. And essentially it would if they were able to fortify it, it would help with. Protecting the certification process, because election security experts I've talked to say that uh, they are worried that there could be Trump loyalists that gain power in states like Georgia. And then they ultimately decide that they want to send a totally different slate of electors to Congress. And then if there are enough Republicans who uh, we saw that uh, 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 more than 100 Republicans voted against certification, that then you know, in a future presidential election, they could decide to do that again. It's not just, they don't even have to overturn any law. Right, and it's not a crazy congressman sending a text
14: to the chief of staff. It's actually them putting pressure on the ground to election
19: officials to do this. Did you want to say something? I did. Well, I just want to jump in because I think there's a common misconception that all of the fraud that Republicans allege is coming from Democrats in Texas this week. They found three cases of voter fraud that was perpetrated by Republicans. And so they're prosecuting them now, our state attorney general is. And so it's not just- in Florida, a, too. And in Florida as well. And, and the issue- Also came Trump up,
1: voters
2: doing
19: it. <laughs> and, and the issue right. that came up in Texas with the concern over the electoral process was that we were doing 24-hour voting during a pandemic and we didn't have enough poll watchers and election workers to oversee these these ballot drop boxes in these locations. And so you know, when you're having things you don't You were don't really have-
10: worried
14: about this election. You wouldn't, you wouldn't be supporting those people who got elected, but you want it both ways. You want to be saying that the election was you know, fake and there are all well, these reasons the to be concerned,
19: but you don't the back want back the yeah. responsibility
14: yeah. of saying that the people elected aren't legitimate.
1: Another issue I wanted to talk about, the Times has a story out today on Republican governors such as South Dakota's Kristi uh, Noem eagerly spending COVID relief money Uh, even though they opposed the same bill earlier this year. Now, Noam uh, said she decided not to refuse the money. Take a listen why.
17: I have had people ask me
6: from time to time in the state, Christy, why don't you just give the federal money back? It will be spent somewhere else other than South Dakota. It'll be incurred by the country, and our people will still suffer the consequences of that spending.
1: What do you make of all this? This is We're seeing more of this, people announcing right. projects in their congressional district for that was funded it's, by it's legislation so they voted It's somewhat predictable. Against. There
18: are a number of Republicans in Congress uh, who have also touted uh, the projects that have come out of the American Rescue Plan or sort of tried to reap the benefits, even though, as we know, it was passed by Democrats along a party line vote. All Republicans opposed it. Um, and I think you're going to start to see it with the infrastructure bill as well. Um, you know, there were some Republicans at the state level who did welcome this assistance, and I think it goes back to the idea that the impact of the pandemic is still being felt very much across the country in terms of uh, its economic impact. The uh, what we've seen with the lingering issues with inflation, supply chain, on schools, on hospitals, and so I'm not surprised a lot of Republicans still feel the need to try and you know express uh, support or act like they're actually you know, benefiting from these projects or part of helping uh, create these projects, even though of course they they're going to continue to hammer President Biden over the size of that bill.
20: It's Republicans like Christine Nome and uh, Governor Ducey in Arizona who also said that he was going to start new broadband projects without really mentioning that they came from the American Rescue mm-hmm. Plan. Though it's those Republicans that uh, Chairman Yarmouth told me, the Budget Chairman in, in the House said that he thinks that Democrats need to be hammering Republicans hard for not putting up the votes for those bills, but then deciding to go to the American public and and tout the benefits and and tout them on the on the stump.
1: So one other thing I wanted to note is um, that uh, the time person of the year uh, is Elon Musk. And um, he, he was just named person of the year. Senator Elizabeth Warren, not happy about that. She tweeted out, let's change the rigged tax code so the person of the year will actually pay taxes. Musk will actually face a large tax bill this year. He responded this way. You remind me, and this is on Twitter, of when I was a kid and my friend's angry mom would just randomly yell at everyone for no reason. Don't call the manager on me, Senator Karen. I will pay more taxes than any American in history this year. Don't spend it all at once. Oh, wait, you did already. Uh, This is, uh, you know.
14: You know, you've got to... He might be the richest man in the world, but he's certainly got the least class of any man in the world. I mean, there... I, you've got to imagine that Time magazine had a better role model to find than Elon Musk. It's not about... I mean, I mean they, I they, hate this guy d- has multiple sexual harassment suits against him. You know, he's notoriously a bad employer. Like, money doesn't mean everything, and it's just... I find it appalling. It's, good not, for Elizabeth it's not the person to take we admire
1: on. the most in the, of the year, right? Yeah. I mean, they it's
14: made Hitler the man of the year person, once. It's the most important person, right? And why is he important? Because he's rich.
12: Well, well no, because, because
19: of what, the innovations yeah. that he has made. I mean, if you look at, at Senator Warren's track record and compare that year year to year to Elon Musk's, I mean, he has moved this country forward leaps and bounds more than she has. His right, track record in innovation, which yeah, is I the that's wealth true. that he has generated <laughs> I mean, for individuals, all the work that he's done. He didn't done, invent
14: think, the electric car, by the way. I didn't say that. I got He also didn't invent... Then space satellites, got but he got it, a lot of government subsidies to put them. But I in can the see air. this
1: is a good match for future pa- uh, pandemics. <laughs> so thank you so much uh, and everybody for being here. Really appreciate it. Coming up next, new CNN polls revealing Americans are worried about the economy and think President Biden is not doing enough about it. Plus, what an outbreak of COVID cases among NFL players might tell us about the pandemic. Thanks so much. Stay with us. In our politics lead, a brand new exclusive CNN poll is revealing why America seems to be souring on President Biden's leadership and on the U.S. economy. Despite positive news on the employment front and on Wall Street, for weeks we've been seeing inflation driving up the costs for nearly everything. Food, gas, cars. Now, Americans say this is a bigger problem for the economy, inflation, than COVID is. Let's get right to CNN's political director, David Chalian. David, explain where this economic
21: anxiety is coming from. Well, we ask people, all these economic issues that are out there, do you see it as a major problem or a minor problem? Look at this list, Jake. You see food costs, supply chain issues, housing costs. It's all nearly eight in 10 Americans in this poll saying that is a major problem for the economy. In fact, COVID-19, uh, two thirds of Americans see that as a major problem, but in comparison to the rising cost issue, uh, it, it is way down there. So that that's the real concern. And then of course, We see a huge majority saying the government's doing too little about inflation. 72% say that the government response to inflation is simply too little. 22% say the right amount. F- only 5% say the government's doing too much.
1: And president Biden obviously has a very uh, ambitious agenda. Do, do the American people feel like these policies from Biden will change any of this?
21: I think this may be one of the most troubling numbers inside our poll for the president today. 45%, nearly half of the Americans in this poll say that Biden's policies have worsened economic conditions. 30% say they've improved, 25% no effect at all. So 70% say they've worsened or no effect at all, Biden's policies. If you look back and compare that to Obama in 2009, uh, it was not nearly uh, that that bad of a score on on his policies making things worse. And then if you look at how Biden has handled the issues and his approval on each, each issue, the economy, he's way down, he's upside down. Look down there, uh, 45% approve uh, of his handling of the economy, 54% disapprove. That's the same when you say about helping the middle class. There's only one issue area where he has a majority approval, and that's COVID-19 with 54% approval.
1: Well, that's fascinating. And this is a sobering uh, year-end report card for the president uh, and his whole administration. The CNN poll has Biden's approval at 49% approval, which remains unchanged from last month, uh, 51% disapprove. But we also have this thing called the CNN. That's our poll right there. Uh-huh. We also have this thing called the CNN Poll of Polls, which includes the five most recent national polls. And we average those together. And that has them lower, 45 percent uh, approval, 50 percent disapproval. At what point does the White House start freaking out? Because these are not positive numbers for the midterms nor for reelection, although that's a lifetime away.
21: Yes, a lifetime away. But and even the midterms are 11 months away, Jake. You talk to White House aides uh, as well. I don't get the sense that this is a team that does a lot of freaking out, but uh, there is clear concern. They understand the political environment as the calendar turns the page into the election year that they're standing right now. And this real economic pinch that Americans are feeling, it creates a real tough terrain for Democrats next year.
1: Let's bring in uh, CNN's Caitlin Collins traveling with President Biden uh, in tornado-ravaged Kentucky. Uh, Caitlin, Um, This poll has it's just devastating for President Biden. Only 34 percent of those polled see Biden as a leader. Sixty six percent say they have some doubts as we get closer to the midterms. What's the takeaway message for Democrats? Do they need to start distancing themselves from President Biden?
3: I think that depends on where they are, of course, Jake, where they're running these races from. You know, when it comes to the president's actual own poll numbers, the disapproval, the approval, what you and David were just talking about, he has said that he's stopped paying attention to those because they've changed so much. He said he is not paying attention to them anymore. Certainly, of course, that was not the top of mind for him when he was here in Kentucky today, making those tours, meeting with those local leaders. But it is something that is for concern for Democrats back in Washington, for the president's political aides back at the White House, something that they are tracking and monitoring closely because, of course, they are paying attention to that ahead of those midterm elections. And so when it comes to these numbers on the economy, which has long been a strong suit of President Biden's ever since he was a candidate and certainly when he first took office, I think that's probably the most concerning for them because it's matching those numbers of people's confidence in his handling of the economy with their rising concerns about inflation, about the supply chain, all of these issues that people have that go hand in hand together. And I think when you talk to aides at the White House, when you talk to political advisors, of this president, they say these aren't quick fixes. These aren't issues that can be changed quickly, or this isn't something that's going to fade from people's uh, public view or public mind. It's something that is going to stay in the forefront of the news cycle for months to come.
1: Yeah, but Caitlin, uh, beyond the the midterms, uh, there is the Biden agenda. There's still that big social safety net spending bill, Build Back Better. It's not any closer to getting passed in the Senate. Senator Joe Manchin of West Virginia, a Democrat, still not willing to say he supports it. I don't even know if that bill is going to be brought up for a vote, to be quite frank, anytime soon. And the the less popular a president is, the less of his agenda he can get through Congress.
3: Yeah, and the White House had kind of been tying getting that bill passed to his number, saying that they'd bump up eventually once they got these big pieces of his economic agenda passed, the infrastructure bill, now this big bill that they were hoping, Jake, to have passed by Christmas. But despite multiple conversations that have happened in recent days between President Biden and Senator Manchin, they have not come any closer together. And a lot of the concerns that you've heard from Senator Manchin that he says he has about this bill are ones that he's really been saying and talking about for months, and they have not come to any kind of consensus on that. And so uh, the idea that they're not going to get that passed by Christmas seems pretty likely, whether they try to do it in the new year and what that looks like, because I think one thing that the White House does recognize is the closer they get to those midterm elections, you know, it makes it a lot harder to pass big legislation, more untenable. So they are trying to get it passed as quickly as possible. I do think that will be a big question because, of course, it's not just his approval. It's whether or not they could physically get it done with the votes if they, of course, lose control of the House or lose that very thin margin in the Senate um, that they have with the vice president's tie-breaking vote come November.
1: Yeah. And and David, how long do you think Democrats have to to change this narrative to get Build Back Better passed, to get other legislative items through the House and Senate before they get clobbered? I mean, you
21: usually see an electoral environment sort of start to take hold in June, July, uh, and then it's real hard. for You need some sort of external event. But Jake, you brought up the leadership points. I just want to say, You said 66%. That's what our poll found, a poll found of people who have reservations about his leadership. 36% of Democrats say they have some doubts or reservations. He also has this issue of his home team, Democrats, not strongly approving him. There's an intensity gap. There's a rallying around effort that needs to happen here. His legislation would help that, but it's totally stalled out at the moment. And so you have Democrats not nearly as enthusiastic at the moment as the president would need them to be heading into next year's election.
1: All right, David Chalian, thank you so much. Appreciate it. Caitlin Collins as well. Coming up next, demanding action. Parents of a former U.S. Marine join us live as they demand the U.S. help free their son. He's been detained in Russia for years now. Stay with us. In our world lead, Paula and Joey Reed will likely spend yet another Christmas without their son, Trevor. Uh, The former U.S. Marine sergeant was detained in Russia in August 2019 after Moscow police claimed a drunk Trevor attacked them. He was initially held without bail. In July 2020, Trevor was sentenced to nine years in prison. Since then, his parents have been fighting for his release. This week, they brought that fight to Washington. And Joey and Paula Reed uh, join me now. Um, thank you so much uh, for being here. It's an honor to have you. You've met with leaders at the White House on Capitol Hill. I want to get that uh, to that in a second. But first, um, you have new information on Trevor's health. We know he had COVID. We know he was in a hunger strike. How is he doing?
17: Um, he's sick. He still has a uh, productive cough and chest pain, uh, pain in his chest. And uh, he's having some kidney issues. He's drinking non-potable water at the jail where he's at. Uh, in the regular barracks, they're allowed to have water and they boil it. But where he's at in solitary confinement, he doesn't have that ability to do that. So we're not sure if that's causing the problems or not. How did you
1: you find out that he's going to the hospital, and and how do you you stay abreast of his health?
8: Well, we had no uh, direct communications with him in 152 days uh, since he went to the prison camp. Uh, So we send an attorney every few weeks, a local attorney, uh, to meet with him uh, to make sure he's still alive. And uh, the ambassadors visited him twice. Um, They try and go every other month. They drive eight hours each way mm. to visit him, and uh, so that's that's. But we learned today from the attorney who went today that he's scheduled to go to a prison hospital uh, somewhere uh, fri- Friday. Friday.
1: And tell us about your meeting with lawmakers. Uh, I understand you met with the National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan and others. Who who, who did you meet with?
17: We met with uh, Senator Cornyn just a few minutes before we got here. We met with uh, Senator, uh, Jackson, uh, Sheila, Sheila Lee. Jackson. Sheila Jackson. And you're then from Texas. We're from right. Texas. Yeah, yes, yeah. and then of course with, uh, our Congressman Pfluger. And we met with... Um, Minority leader. Minority leader, leader Kevin McCarthy. McCarthy. Mm-hmm. And that's where we used to live, in Tehachapi. So he was our uh, dist- he was our representative there. But we met with them. And then I'll let Joey talk about the Jake Sullivan uh, meeting. Yeah, yes, I mean,
1: what do you need these leaders to do? And what did Jake Sullivan, the National Security Advisor, have to tell you?
8: Well, first of all, we hear numerous rumors that come out of the Russian media about what's happening. Um, the uh, the State Department and uh, SPIHA's office, the Special Prosecutor... Uh, presidential envoy for hostage affairs, they can't tell us anything that's happening. And so we just try and talk to as many uh, government agencies as we can to uh, explain who Trevor is, you know, put a face on the name, on the number, and, uh, and find out if, they're, if they are doing something. And uh, after our meeting with uh, Jake Sullivan yesterday, uh, we feel confident that the government is trying everything they can uh, to bring him home. You know, and all agencies from the president on down are involved. And uh, that's about all we know. But we're very thankful for that meeting with him. And he was very, uh, very compassionate and, uh, and open with us. And, and,
1: and what's, the, what's the best case scenario? I mean, do the Russians want a prisoner swap? I mean, what can be done?
17: They do want a prisoner swap, as what we, we hear from their, yeah. from their media and everything. Yeah. Um, and we don't know for sure what the deal is. But if that would be the prisoner swap, we hope that it comes sooner than later, because we're worried about the situation with Ukraine. We think that um, once anything happens there, it's going to be harder for Trevor and Paul.
9: Oh, yeah. But Paul Paul Wheeling.
17: Paul Wheeling, Paul yes, the,
1: um, the other hostage that the yes. Russians are holding. And as you uh, mentioned, Joey, Trevor's not the only American being detained in a foreign country right now. There's a whole agency for it uh, that, you, that you just mentioned. Um, what do you say to the, your fellow family members of detainees, the Whelans or others?
8: Well, first of all, uh, other, other families like the Whelan family, they gave us a lot of uh, advice and guidance because they had, were already in the system and and you every country is different but within our own country there's multiple agencies that you're dealing with in these situations and uh, there's no real guidebook on how to uh, navigate through all those issues to and uh, like you're one of the reasons that we're here is that uh, we try and find news agencies that will cover the story oh, yeah. and keep it in the public eye, which keeps you know the focus on it by government officials and elected officials.
1: Yeah, we're so. going to keep covering this. I mean, look, and I, I told you this during the break, but like, I we covered this. We covered Alan Gross when he was taken hostage and jailed by the Cubans. There, there, there will be a, a day that we're covering the good news of him being released. Yeah. But I know it's easy for me to say. How do you stay optimistic? How do you keep the faith?
17: Um, mostly. Um, when we were able to communicate with Trevor, he just made it very clear that we should not worry, even though, of course, we're parents and we're going to worry. But he has a really good attitude. He's strong. And I just try to look to that and, and keep myself together. I do have bad days. Um, and everybody does. It's not just affected me. It's his sister, our, our extended family, everyone. But um, I just have to be faithful. And after, like Joey said, after our meeting with Jake Sullivan today, we, we feel more hopeful. So...
8: Yeah. Do you feel more, more hopeful today? Oh, absolutely. And, uh, and I, I try and stay focused on, you know, keeping his name out there and, and uh, speaking out on his behalf, uh, you know, to try and get him home, do everything we can, uh, make our contacts in Russia. And, uh, and on Trevor's attitude, uh, and I know they won't want me to say this, but your training in Marine boot camp is essentially prisoner of war training. Yeah. And uh, so that's what's probably helped him get, get along this, this far.
1: I do worry about you guys, though. I mean, it's your third Christmas without him, and I know you love him so much. We do. Um, how are you going to celebrate Christmas, and, and what's your message to people out there? How can, how can viewers right now, right now watching, how can, how can they help?
8: Uh, well, several things. So you can go to the thewhitehouse.com. And uh. Gov, gov, I think, right? I'm sorry, yes. And Mm -hmm. and thank you. And uh. and send a message to the president each day, and you just say these basic things bring Trevor Reed and Paul Whelan home from Russia. And you know, and when you you the president not going to see the message, but he's going to see I had 5,000 people do this every day. And so that's one of the main things we urge people to do contact your congressmen, your senators. Although we have bipartisan, one of the few things in America right now, we have bipartisan agreement in both houses of Congress to bring Trevor home. There's resolutions from Democrats and Republicans holding hands on this issue. And so just uh, keep calling them, keep writing them, keep sending those messages. And, uh, and also we're looking for letters and cards uh, to send to him at Christmas. Actually, we won't be able to send them, but the ambassador hopefully will read, read them to him after Christmas.
1: Okay, well, that's special. And, and uh, we're going to keep covering this, and I hope not for much longer. Yeah, I hope God, not. Bless, God bless both of you, and, and we're going to you know, keep the faith We're gonna keep shining a light on
8: this for you. Thank Thank you you, and thanks CNN. Thank you all. Thank Thank you so much.
1: Dozens of NFL players have tested positive for COVID just this week, and now the league's top doctor has just weighed in. That's next. Right now in the health lead, you're listening live to 800 bell tolls at Washington's National Cathedral, marking the 800,000 lives lost to coronavirus here in the United States. Moments ago, top NFL officials addressed a recent COVID outbreak plaguing the league, including the Cleveland Browns star quarterback Baker Mayfield, who today was placed on the reserve COVID-19 list. This after the team's head coach, Kevin Stefanski, tested positive for COVID, and this has 65 NFL players Tested positive for COVID this week alone. We should emphasize this is just testing positive. This is not hospitalizations, and most are asymptomatic. Let's bring in CNN's Coy Wire. Coy, it's notable that the NFL brought out its top doctor to address this uptick in cases. What do you have to say?
11: Yeah, uptick uh, certainly occurring. And while this is certainly about more than just the players and coaches involved, Uh, No hospitalizations have been reported in this latest wave, Jake. However, remember early November, Minnesota head coach Meg Zimmer said that a vaccinated player on his team was rushed to the hospital after experiencing shortness of breath due to COVID. Now, you mentioned Browns head coach Kevin Stefanski. He says he feels fine. He would not comment, Jake, on the status of any of his players. They're going to have to produce two negative tests within a 24-hour period ahead of their game on Saturday against the Raiders, or they'll be forced to sit out. Here's Dr. Sills uh, addressing This latest uptick in cases.
1: As you know, we have about twice as many staff as we do players who are testing. And so typically we've run a higher ratio of staff cases to player cases. Over the past four to five days, we've seen that ratio inverted. So far more players affected than staff. Most importantly, a very, very large percentage of asymptomatic or mild illness.
11: Now, Jake, I talked to one player who said, you know, we're used to this after what they went through last year. The Browns, they're accustomed to navigating this type of situation. The Stefanski missed the Browns' first playoff game in 18 years, you might remember, after testing positive for COVID last season.
1: And, Corey, we should note, it's, it's not just the NFL with an outbreak of COVID cases.
11: Yeah, that's right. Uh, the NBA are experiencing a, a surge in COVID cases right now, Jake. Over the first six weeks of the season, 16 players Uh, entered the league's health and safety protocols. And right now, there are 31. That's according to CBS Sports. Now, uh, the league postponed two Chicago Bulls games this week after an outbreak on the team, uh, which sidelined at least 10 of its players. Uh, We're talking Bucks star Giannis Antetokounmpo, the reigning Finals MVP. He is out for the uh, Milwaukee's game tonight against the Pacers. Uh, The Los Angeles Lakers, they had to cancel their practice yesterday, though they will play their game tonight. Uh, The Brooklyn Nets, Jake, they were nearly forced to cancel their game against the Raptors last night with seven players in COVID protocols right now, including superstar James Harden. So COVID cases certainly surging across pro sports, even in the NHL, uh, Jake, here. The fourth Calgary Flames game was just postponed today after a team added seven more players to their league uh, COVID protocols. And that brings their total to 16. Tonight's Hurricanes wild game also called off because of an outbreak on the Carolina team. There have now been 10 NHL games postponed this season. Jake, five just this week.
1: Wow. Coy Wire, thanks so much. Secret documents about the JFK assassination just declassified by the government. We'll show you what they say. That's next. In our national lead, an escalating humanitarian and border crisis. Last week, the Biden administration reinstated a Trump-era border policy after a lower court ruling that forces migrants seeking asylum to wait in Mexico until their U.S. immigration court date. This comes as thousands of migrants from Central and South America are illegally crossing into a desolate area in Arizona. And as CNN's Priscilla Alvarez reports now from Yuma... This is putting additional stress on already strained Border Patrol agents.
6: It's the moment they've been waiting for. These migrants are turning themselves over to Border Patrol. There are no guarantees, but Carlos, a migrant from Venezuela, is grateful to finally come face to face with federal agents. This is his shot at asylum. His family back home depends on him, he says. He is one of thousands of migrants who have descended on this part of the border in the last few weeks, overwhelming border patrol and prompting the federal government to send more help. This is where migrants, primarily from South America, have been waiting for hours for Border Patrol to pick them up. An agency that's already been under immense strain, we're seeing now three Border Patrol vans who are coming to pick up these migrants and take them to the station. Many say they've been waiting for hours, setting up these fires just to stay warm. The buses have come, they've just left, what's next? He says the people here have waited for years to come to the U.S. They have no other choice. (laughs) Economic and political instability in much of Latin America has driven more and more migrants north. Yuma has become a destination where migrants can cross easily and turn themselves into border patrol.
1: This is highly unusual. This is ground we've never really tread before.
6: Yuma mayor Douglas Nichols issued a local emergency to help the situation in his city.
1: This is a a very... um, out of the ordinary uh, level of traffic for Yuma.
6: Migrant surges along the U.S.-Mexico border have happened before, but now it's the remote areas like this that are being hit hard. In October, Border Patrol arrested nearly 22,000 people crossing the border in Yuma. That's up from 1,600 in January, an increase of 1,200%.
0: We're busy everywhere. We're not slow in any specific location. So when you take resources from another location, up another busy location, um, you're just depleting those resources to deal with an issue that can be dealt with through policy.
6: Brandon Judd is the president of the Border Patrol Union. He says smugglers and cartels contribute to the greater numbers.
0: We're seeing so many people put themselves in their
6: hands. At the request of Governor Doug Ducey, Arizona's Department of Public Safety has deployed to these remote parts of the border to monitor for criminal activity.
8: Out here, we're watching the desert, looking for movement, looking for uh, any signs that that we have a group coming through.
6: On this 75-mile stretch of the border, Major Cecil and his troopers try to fill in the gaps.
8: What we're seeing here is a surge of illegal drugs. Because Border Patrol is, is tied up and they know that, that manpower out here is, is limited.
6: This week, the Biden administration is expected to send 100 agents here. For Carlos and this group of migrants, getting on the bus is their best bet for a better future. Jake, you may have noticed in our story that a lot, Jake, you may have noticed in our story that a lot of families were carrying suitcases and luggage. And that's because these are middle class families from South America who are flying to a nearby airport in Mexico about 30 miles from where we are. And they're crossing at the border gap behind me to turn themselves over to border patrol, cutting their journey that is often months down to just days. Jake?
1: Priscilla Alvarez on the U.S.-Mexico border for us. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. And our national lead, a historic choice in New York. For the first time in that city's history, a woman will lead the nation's largest police department. Mayor-elect Eric Adams, himself a retired police captain, announced he is selecting Keech Sewell as his pick to head the NYPD. Sewell is currently the chief of detectives in neighboring Nassau County on Long Island. She spoke about the significance of her selection earlier today.
21: As the first woman, and only the third black person to lead the NYPD in its 176 year history, I bring a different perspective, committed to make sure the department looks like the city it serves. To all the little girls within the sound of my voice, there is nothing you can't do, and no one
19: you can't become.
1: Sewell says her focus will be on stopping violent crime as the city struggles with a sharp rise in gun violence and murders. The Biden administration releasing secret documents today that some historians hope could provide new insight into the assassination of President John F. Kennedy. CNN's Tom Foreman dug into the nearly 1,500 pages to see if any new information is being revealed.
22: Ask not what your country can do for you. The nearly 1,500 documents are filled with intriguing details. A Polish driver in Australia saying he listened in on Russian passengers talking about five Soviet submarines carrying 400 to 500 Soviet soldiers on their way to Cuba. There was a plot to pay $100,000 to kill President Kennedy. A Nicaraguan claiming he saw the president's killer, Lee Harvey Oswald, being paid $6,500 by Russians. And endless reports like this. Oswald entered Mexico claiming he was a photographer, phoning the Soviet embassy to ask for a visa so he could go to Odessa, USSR. Little of the information is entirely new to the public. Many of the leads were long ago dispensed with or disproven.
9: To the White House in Washington comes the final verdict on the fateful tragedy which engulfed the nation ten months ago.
22: But ever since the Warren report, every tiny bit of information pulled from the shroud of government secrecy has fed conspiracy theorists who believe Oswald did not act alone and may have been backed by Cuba, Russia, the Mafia. Out of the corner of my eye, I
17: saw
14: a flash of light in bushes and then shots rang out.
22: And these latest papers are fascinating, serious historians too,
21: even when they aren't all about Oswald. I learned some things today, uh, more details about how the, the mafia were used in an attempt to kill Castro. Now, I sort of understand much better the, the technique uh, that would have been involved and why it was a serious effort, which did not actually succeed, as we know.
22: That sort of information, interestingly, is what has driven a lot of the secrecy around the Kennedy files as intelligence officials have wanted to keep under wraps their methods and their contacts used in that far-ranging investigation even decades later. And it's worth noting that about 10,000 documents remain either redacted or totally off-limits.
1: All right, Tom Foreman, thanks so much. Coming up next, a rare fish only spotted a handful of times. Stay with us. Maybe we'll call this the Sea World lead. Check out this exotic sighting off California's coast. That's a see through fish, also known as a barrel eye fish. A dive team with the Great Monterey, Monterey Bay Aquarium spotted the fish this month. What appears to be its eyes on the front, they're actually sensory organs. Marine biologists say that the fish's real eyes are the green, bright green orbs in the forehead, and that they can rotate forward as the fish eats. Researchers discovered the existence of the barrel eye in 1939, but sightings are extremely rare. This dive team said of the 27,000 hours it has spent underwater, its divers have spotted the barrel eye only nine times. Our coverage continues now with Wolf Blitzer in the Situation Room. I'll see you tomorrow.
0: When you work, you work next level. When you play, you play next level.